Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by AIA Australia, committed to working with advisors to protect the financial health and welfare of more than 3 million Australians. In 2020, AIA paid over 2.2 billion in claims. That's a little over $42 million each week and clients needed it most. AIA Australia would like to help you arm yourself for your next client appointment with this five-part series into Australia's income protection industry from the 90s to now. Strengthen your knowledge and conversations with valuable insights from a panel of speakers from various backgrounds, exploring how the new generation of IP products can help your clients. Thank you for diving into the series again. We are in episode four of a five-part series on IDII. Uh, and in this particular episode, we're addressing the concept around insurance philosophies and just understanding what that might mean in your practice, having a philosophy around insurance, the way we do things around here, and just being able to understand uh, how other people are doing it and what's expected around the insurance philosophy. Thank you for joining us again, Catherine Hayes. Hello. Well, now we are talking about insurance philosophies. Uh, obviously, this is something that uh, we sort of touched on in the previous episode, but um, it really does come back down to how do you now work out what the, your insurance philosophy is these days? Uh, honestly, it really hasn't changed a great deal. So um, I've got a in-house philosophy, a philosophy about how I partner income protection, TPD trauma, and life cover. Um, that philosophy really hasn't changed. Um, I think it was quite tempting um, in the early stages to go, oh gosh, a loss of any um, loss of own and moving into ENIOC um, for most insurers with all these changes, maybe it means potentially relying more on ONOC for TPD more. But then chatting to the insurers and looking at some of the stats about um, how often TPD claims are paid and based on a partial or permit scenario, I thought, you know what, that's really leaving yourself wide open. So I haven't adjusted the strategy of TPD, ONOC is something desired by a client. We focus on that, but we don't. We won't be looking at it as a at the end of two years or five years IP stops, and we rely on TPD. I think that would be a really dangerous strategy to shift um, into that thinking as a result of these changes. Yep. And how do you how do you talk to your clients about the, the fact that you have this philosophy in place? And it's to me, any philosophy is like it's it's a it's your history, your experience. It's also your bias, you know, like because you've seen stuff that they they haven't. Absolutely, because I have um, I've seen advisors who go with the approach of if you got diagnosed with say cancer or heart attack, you could use trauma to pay off your mortgage. Absolutely, you could do that, but that's not my house philosophy. So my house philosophy when it comes to trauma insurance is I look at it; it's a temporary situation. You're either going to get better, you're going to beat what you're dealing with, but it will leave you with a permanent disability, or you will not beat it. And then, you know, those latter two scenarios, life insurance and TPD take over in those cases. If you get better and you're fully restored, you don't need it, but it could be a couple of years before you work out your landing zone. So my philosophy around trauma has always been 
over two to three years, we need to manage the impact of that, the lifestyle choices, the financial implications, drop in income, and work through that with clients saying, what would you want at the end of the day as options available to you? And it's kind of like a pick and mix and they talk about what they value and that helps me work out how much cover um, that they'd like to have. And then I talk them through my philosophies around medical expenses uh, and they can either agree or disagree, but that's all recorded. And and as part of this, I literally have a, I've had it drawn up. It's a, a drawing that actually shows how the different covers work together with your income protection being that, that cash flow piece with uh, your trauma and your TPD running parallel as either short-term and longer-term, you know, capital um, primarily capital solutions with, you know, once you cross that uh, that border, life insurance becomes about everybody else. Yeah, well, I love the idea. So that my, um, my clients love that drawing. I was constantly having them take photos of it, so I decided to get it professionally drawn up and built into my fact find. That's so. super cool. I love the, I love the visual mm-hmm. of the drawing, um, and it does actually reflect, I, you know, I think I used to say to people it's more of an art than a science anyway, getting this right. And, uh, and I always used to say, you know, there's – you're always going to wish you had more cover at claim time and you're always going to wish you had less at, at premium time. So you, there's no right or wrong. It's just trying to get it um, get it to, to work for them. Mm. Now, you mentioned all recorded. Tell me about that. You have you have that insurance philosophy conversation and, uh, and you record it? Yeah. So my face-to-face meetings I um, didn't uh, record in the past. I just do the file note after. Um, but ever since COVID hit in 2020, I obviously moved to a lot of Zoom meetings like most other people did. Um, and I noticed with some parents homeschooling, there'd be a parent getting up, moving about, constantly distracted. And I started feeling a little bit nervous going, how can I meet that best interest duty knowing my clients having informed consent if they were clearly distracted. So um, I started recording the meetings and said, I'm going to record this and I'm going to send you a copy of the recording uh, simply because if there is anything that you want to revisit, here it is, or or it saved that issue where sometimes you book in a couple and only one is available, the other one gets called away. And it's like, fine, we are good to go ahead. Um, here's the copy and I will be checking with your partner that they watched our meeting. and. I now do that instead of file notes. I record everything <laughs> and um, and clients really appreciate it. They say, oh, it's so good because that way if we ever forget. And I know a couple of advisors are going, oh, you have to be really careful what you say. And that was a little bit of nervousness on, on that side of things. You think, okay, is this open to misinterpretation? Um, but between the drawings and what we talk about, it's, it's all pretty clear and, um, you know, it's very educational approach that I take clients through. So... There's lots of uh, informed consent along the way, which is really good. I, I think it's a fantastic idea recording and getting that informed consent. And, and, and as you, in the time, as you said, the, the file note uh, conversation, or the file notes become a lot easier because uh, yeah, here's the absolutely. recording. Have you ever had anyone push back and not want to be recorded? Only once. And oh, it, um, it made me really nervous. Um, it was my first appointment back in the office. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and record this meeting. So I brought over my laptop opened up a one-sided Zoom meeting, which I recorded, and I said to the client, I'm going to record this. Um, is that okay? And he said yes. And um, I have a setting on my Zoom account, so if you're recording, it, it has to announce and request permission, So um, and it gives that order. And I did that in the meeting, and we got to the end, and he was quite upset because he thought it was audio only, despite the it looking at him, and he wasn't familiar with Zoom. And I had to sit there and actually delete the video portion of the conversation, like sit there and maybe do it. And I was like, wow, that was a really bad experience for using recording in the office. 
but that was one out of hundreds of interactions. Yep. And um, so I just thought, okay, I just need to be a little bit more clear with the way I communicated this. Um, but he was happy to be audio recorded, just didn't understand that there was a video element to it as well. Yeah, and he's probably got to turn the video off uh, if that's the case. But this is the really interesting part. If that's part of your philosophy, then it, it, it just becomes part of your process and, and the conversations become really easy. Um, I, I explained the intent and I said, this is to provide you with an access to be able to revisit this at any time you wish. And if they go, oh, I'm not likely to visit, I said, well, it's it's good that you have it. You don't have to. But it also saves me from being able to do a file note, which means I get to spend more time with people like yourself. Um, if I did that, I probably wouldn't have been able to see you when I did. And they're like, okay, makes sense. Do, wonderful. Now, do you have a philosophy around premium affordability and cash flow and those sorts mm. of things? Yeah. So... Um, so as part of my diagrams and whatnot, we, we talk about um, ownership options, um, structuring cover and the like, and um, I do tend to present a certain option, for example, with IP splits, especially prior to the changes. Um, if I've got someone with a lot of um, young kids and they're going through those expense, that really expensive phase of life, we talk about the options of um, what it could mean for their budget. And they'll give me a preference as to say funding cover from super versus personal cash flow where possible. Um, I don't get a exact budget directive to begin with. Um, but what I do tell them is as part of the exercise, I'm asking them about everything that they want to happen in place as far as outcomes. So at the end of that process, I tell them at the next meeting, not only will I have their pre-assessments completed to let them know what terms and coverage is likely available, researching any um, existing cover they may have, which is 99% of the time, which is what's in super. Um, I will come to them with option A, which is what everything that they want. And if that is they're happy with the premiums, we just do that. But life's not always like that. So I come up with an option B and an option C. Option B will just strip out some of the more niceties, the less essential things, whereas a option C is a generally a do not go below this because if something does happen, you'll have those benefits there, but you may not financially recover as a result. Because at the end of the day, you do not have to insure everything. Um, and that's, I think, a trap that we fall into. It is a valid strategy for a client to go, I will retain that risk. I don't have to transfer it. And that looking at that in our second meeting, that trade-off between the cost of the premiums and the perceived value of the sum insured. And that's what we talk through in the second meeting. And, and if there's a budget as a concern, we might say, okay, is it more important to put your budget towards a higher or lower level of trauma or do we focus on giving you access to TPD ONOC or, you know, we have those conversations. So then when we do get to the advice piece, the client already understands how much they're expecting to spend broadly and are there any outcomes they're going to have to forego? Um, because what I want to avoid is having a client sign a revised authority to proceed because I think that's where the danger is, danger lies because it's not ample opportunity to to explain the risks for them to understand what they've had to give up. But if they've had a week or two in between their decision, receiving the advice and then implementing, I think that mitigates that risk to a huge degree. Yeah, wonderful. And that retain versus transfer conversation is pretty important too. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I, I, I mean, I, I, I was also also going to throw in the mix there that the um, I heard what somebody say once that you know the it's it's when somebody can least afford the insurance that they need the most. And when they yeah. when they can afford the insurances, that that's what not when they need it the most. So it's a it's a tricky one. Yes, Catherine, thanks so much. We look forward to catching you in the next episode. Catch you then. 
Thanks for joining us again, Jeff. Welcome back. Thanks, Fraser. Good to be here. I've enjoyed the chat so far. I'm looking forward to more. Fantastic. We are talking in this particular episode around philosophies, and I think uh, this is going to be super helpful con conversations uh, for advisors because they are now having to reassess what their insurance philosophy is. It's, it was very similar when all the products were the, very similar, almost the same uh, that you, you know, when, when you're making um, the choice between what, you know, company you might be looking at, you're actually just going, okay, great. Well, you know, we have the same philosophy from company to company, but that's all changing now. Yeah, it sure is. And I, I guess to preface this conversation, let's say, you know, our our insurance philosophy is currently a work in progress because this is all very new and we're, you know, we're, I guess, talking to different people, um, bouncing ideas around and looking at different product suite as well. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we might talk about now is kind of just ideas bouncing around in my head without having committed anything to, uh, to writing at this stage. Um, but I think, you know, the, the products are so different from each other in this space now where it used to be reasonably, you know, homogenous. Now, you know, there's such a vast range. So getting your head around the different products is really an important starting point. And, you know, that's that's more complicated and I think becoming more of a specialist area. And I know, you know, I know you've got one particular guest who, who's on, on the panel here who, who loves reading PDSs, you know, cover to cover and, and she'll be all over it. Um, whereas, you know, for, for the mere mortals like myself, that's a, a bit more challenging. Um, but it's an important starting area to, to have a look at the different products and, and think about where they do or don't fit into an existing philosophy uh, and what needs to change. And we, knew, we do know from an income protection viewpoint, we're definitely going to need to change. Uh, it's just, yeah, what does that exactly look like? There's a few options. Yeah, as we go through this, um, as we go through the reading of policies and we understand, you know, when, when definitions do and don't kick in and, and, and what happens, you know, throughout claims uh, and the changes that take place throughout claims, claims are no longer a consistent thing uh they'll they'll change over time once as we start getting to know the product and then understanding the the history and background and experience that every advisor will bring into that which is going to be all different uh some some people will have had lots of claims experience and they will bring different things to people who have had less claims experience um as those these philosophies form i guess you could say which is based you know the experience plus the new products um do you think that uh, advice or advice firms will then start to to individualize their philosophy the same way say a, a risk philosophy might uh, sorry an investment philosophy might be different from company to company I think there's more chance of that happening now than there was previously yeah um, I've had a few conversations in recent weeks where people were thrown some ideas that I hadn't hadn't thought about about how they might tackle it um, which is great you know as I said haven't committed to anyone holus bolus yet but um yeah, there are more of those options to, to throw around now. So I definitely think that will be the case. Um, I think it's it's almost looking at income protection becomes more of a holistic piece now potentially than previously where you previously had a product which just sorted that out and it was, you know, protect 75% of your income and, you, you know, in the main you do it to age 65 and away you go. It's not as straightforward anymore. So it's how do the other parts of the risk puzzle uh, integrate into that to provide the, you know, I guess to do what they were doing before, but also how do they aid the income protection and, and you know, uh, protecting your overall position and your, your overall income for longer. So that's probably the biggest change um, that we're facing in that space. Yeah, you mentioned in one of the earlier episodes how, you know, the the income protection was always the starting point and and we mentioned the loss leader part, but the starting point and then you'd build the other products, the, 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 the lump sum products around that. Do you think that 
this these changes will actually mean that there's insurance philosophies that becomes more so the case as would would tie in one company for for per client i think it will still be the case that that it's the it's the sort of foundation cornerstone piece um but i think it's not not a standalone sort of conversation anymore. So I, I, I think that will still still hold. And I think that's where it'll be interesting to see the product innovation and development and how, you know, some companies have come out with their products now and, you know, they're kind of, you know, way, way out here compared to other ones way out there. And if they find that they're just not getting any business, they're going to have to make some changes, whereas these other ones out here might sort of corner the market for a period of time. So that might mean that, I guess, you know, you, as those changes come through, we might focus our attention on one or two companies more so than previously where we had a, you know, we still have a broad APL and, but when it comes to income protection, knowing those products more intimately and where they fit may mean that we have to gravitate to a smaller kind of range of, of com- companies in the meantime. Um, and that means they're going to get our lump sum business as well. Yeah, I was, I was thinking that uh, as well. I was thinking that, um, you know, the, the way that you, you'll develop a philosophy will determine that you have a, uh, essentially, um, and you'll be communicating to your client, where, uh, this is what I believe in, so this is why I'm going to recommend it. As you mentioned before, you know, you're the advice provider. It comes back to you and your beliefs and, and, and your uh, history and experience. Um, so it's almost like there'll be less companies and there might only be three companies that you're looking at, not the, not the whole spectrum of the market anymore. Yep, I think it will be. Um, I think that's already sort of becoming a little bit clear just in the first few weeks of, of analysing these new products that some of them, you know, will find it difficult to, to recommend based on their, their definitions and terms compared to others. Um, and the price, you know, the price is a consideration, but it's a long way down because there's so many other checks and balances to go through now to see where they stack up in terms of their definitions and um, quality of the products. So, um, we're already starting to look at, you know, kind of narrowing probably where that fits for those new clients. And we've only, you know, we've only done a couple of SOAs and, and you know, implemented a couple of policies at this stage. Um, but it's narrow, definitely narrowing our search, I suppose. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And the uh, and the concept of, you know, reason coming up with that reasonable basis or having that philosophy or informing your client as to this is what we believe in and this is why we've um, come up with this, you know, these yep. particular recommendations. I think the philosophy around the um, you know, existing client book is also another one which we've, we've touched on in the past and that's one which we're, we're grappling with a little bit. And so, you know, we're kind of almost going to have two philosophies. I guess the big picture philosophy is probably, you know, the same uh, in terms of, you know, I think we still believe income protection to age 65 is a good good uh, place to be, but the, how you protect that income to age 65 might be different to the old old way. Yeah, I think I think it was very easy in the past to go. Here is a strategy. We you know, we need to cover you. You know the strategy. So off the back of the strategy, we need product. Um, it kind of feels at the moment we're starting with product and then looking at what strategy is that. Do you feel that as well, or is that something that I'm I'm off the mark with? I think potentially the product's coming in a little bit earlier into the process, but I still think we're starting with strategy. We're still starting with, you know, does this client need income protection do they need life insurance trauma tpd uh, and, and why what purpose do they need it for um, where does it fit into their overall financial plan what would happen if they didn't have it and is that important to them um, so i still think we're going through that process but once we've got through that with our zeroing in closer on well 
based on you know their specific needs and their strategy, we know that the product suite is is limit a bit more limited than it was. Um, so we probably just get into product a little bit earlier, but still starting with strategy for sure. Yep. And when uh, when it comes to the needs analysis or questioning that you're doing with your clients, does this new philosophy have to now come into that part of the process, asking questions around you know sustainability or questions around different types of different types of things? Yeah, it will. Um, I don't think. Again, I don't think we'll ask questions around sustainability necessarily, other than the sustainability of the client's cash flow position, um, because they've got to be able to keep paying paying the premiums. So that's an important one. But it's it's looking at I think potentially looking more at the plan and timeframes and milestones and stepping stones as to you know the different moving pieces as opposed to just going we're going to have seventy five percent till age sixty five which is all you know, three-tier definition and you know that if anything goes wrong, you'll be, you'll be sweet. It's got to be more, more nuanced than that now. So we've probably got to flesh that out a little bit and say, well, you know, for the first five years, it's vital that you have maximum income replacement. But after five years, you know, your kids have finished school and, you know, that type of stuff. So maybe we, we don't need to have, you know, we can afford to step back in the income replacement ratio at that stage or maybe we, you know, we're more concerned with the lump sum at that point in time or, those types of things, I think, become potentially a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, and incredible. You're right. There's a lot more in depth uh, to go through. There's probably a little bit more in, in that case too, uh, less set and forget type mentality around insurance now. It's more actively managed um, portfolios. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I think there's some opportunity. I mean, that, that's a really hard piece of the puzzle though to work with clients on their scenario and and. Yeah, that I guess the technology and the systems that the insurers have available for us at the moment don't allow that to happen very easily. If you want to look at well, what would happen if you change this waiting period or you know this benefit period or added this benefit on or reduced this uninsured, then it can take two or three weeks to get an enforced quote back from an insurer. Some companies have gotten slightly better, but a lot of them haven't. So, you know, for that process to occur, I think there's a big opportunity for insurers in that space to make that a lot easier and, and you, if you think about it from the viewpoint if they make that easier the likelihood of us keeping the business with them is significantly higher um, but it's also the likelihood of us considering their new products and and suites if they can make it easy for us to model you know what does it look like if we combine a new product with an old product by you know extending the waiting period on their existing income protection to two years have a new product come in with a two-year benefit, if we can quote that all together or make that easy to mix and match that, then it's much more likely that um, we'll, we'll give that a consideration. Yep, uh, absolutely. That's That's been around a long time, make it easy, and, uh, and, uh, and it's a good way to do business with people. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for coming in. Obviously, there's at the, at the time of uh, you know recording this and sending it out, there's a, probably more questions than answers in this particular uh, place, but really, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for joining me again, Natalie Cameron. Oh, great to be here again, Fraser. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. We are talking about insurance philosophy and the concept of, well, every single advisor out there has got some uh, some experience, uh, some philosophies on the different parts of the insurance that they do and don't like. Uh, there's there's no one size fits all. And I love the, the term uh, tailored suit, not a blanket that you mentioned in the, in the previous episode. <laughs> It's so concerning being recorded on a podcast, Fraser, because I never know what crazy um, <laughs> analogy I'm going to come up with next. <laughs>
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Talk, talk, to, talk to us about advisors having their, um, t- their, their, their suit tailoring uh, con- concept of their insurance <laughs> philosophy. Well, I guess the, um, uh, I guess the, uh, the fact is there's no single pattern. Um, that's, uh, and what, what the regulators uh, or, the, or, or the or the legislation really requires is uh, is to not start with what you want the suit to be, but to start with the person and you know and what their body needs. So um, you know uh, the you know t- to cover old ground and you know I apologize apologize to everyone who knows this inside out, but you know uh, the Corporations Act it it requires advisors to act in the best interests of their client when they're giving personal advice. Um, And in order to demonstrate that, the advisor has to show that they've identified the objectives, uh, financial situation and needs of the client, um, that they've, uh, now if I continue with my analogy, that they've, uh, you know, that they've really uh, asked the client, uh, are you, you, you know, are you heading somewhere tropical uh, in the summer or are you, you know, or do you, you know, do you live in the Arctic? Uh, and you know, is it a, is it a black tie event, or are you going casual? Um, and uh, and then finding out what it is they're hoping for in the future. Um, and in, and this, and it also does include what they can afford. Uh, and and maybe in my analogy, that one's the same for both for the tailor and advisors uh, giving advice. Um, it's just really important that what people purchase is when it's an ongoing cost is something that they can afford now, but also into the future. I mean, you know, you know, the wrong advice can have um, a significant impact on superannuation. It can, uh, you know, have an impact on quality of life. Um, if, if people do not understand what it is they're signing up for in terms of cost. Yeah, I, I, I love the concept of starting with the person, not the product. Um, affordability, again, has raised its head here. Is this is there something around this in an insurance philosophy where you might look at um, a client's existing purchasing decision-making process? You know, do they drive a Toyota or are they driving a, 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 a Lexus or something? You know, like is there a is there a purchasing conversation that says, you know, well, if they, if they want, um, if they're interested in high quality products, they might be interested in a high quality insurance product, or if they're interested in, I hate, hate the analogy, maybe Kmart type, type suits, uh, Kmart clothes rather than uh, tailored suits. Is there something in that with regards to their, where their, their values lie in their existing decision-making process around purchases? Oh, I mean, look, you know, it, there, there, there might be, and I'm sure that uh, you know if, if if nobody's done their psychology thesis on this already, I think they should. Um, uh, but you know, at the same time, uh, you know, we have to take every individual and uh, not make assumptions about them, um, even based on what they've done in the past. And you know, I mean, I I'm a you know I've got two small kids. Um, let me tell you, big fan of Kmart. Uh, and also a big fan of, um, you know, really good, uh, you know, uh, uh, financial protection and, um, you know, uh, other things, you know, education, other things that I might spend my money on. I guess it doesn't always follow uh, that you're a big spender and you might want the, the most expensive product. Yep. Yep. Now, uh, I sort of touched on the, the concept before about uh, an advisor's um, experience and history. Um, and that can also come into, and I guess part of the, the past few months has formed, you know, advisors 
experience, whether, whether it be, um, you know, losing trust in, in things or, or gaining trust in things, depending on how claims go or bill shock comes in the door. Um, but the, the big thing to me is that having advisors that can actually then demonstrate or have a conversation with their clients to say, this is what my previous experience has been, and this is what's influencing my decision-making process. And so giving the client the opportunity to say, actually, I do or don't agree with that particular concept. I mean, the same way an advisor might be very heavy into, say, um, sustainability or ESG-type investing on their investment portfolios, they may also have, um, you know, biases around their insurance portfolio that if disclosed to the client could form, mean the clients actually have the opportunity to agree or disagree with that philosophy before they, you know, go, go ahead with the insurance. Well, it's, a, it's another fascinating area of psychology, isn't it? I mean, I believe we're all riddled with bias uh, and, you know, that's that's just a human state. It's nothing um, that you can completely eradicate. I think the, the, the question is, as a professional, um, you know, do you have um, practices and process uh, and a way of, you know, looking objectively at uh, the question you've got before you and, you know, uh, making the best recommendation, even if it wouldn't be the, the best one for you or even if you've once had a bad experience, you know, with with one um, insurer, say, or, you know, that, you know, there's there's some other factor in your personal life that would, you know, would, would sort of naturally cause you concern about a particular product or situation. Um, you know, I think uh, in the advice context that, you know, part of that uh, robust process um, and objective consideration has got to be the process of going through the fact find, um, of documenting, of, you know, of making the recommendation of, of drawing it out in the SOA. And I would really strongly recommend not just sort of lapsing onto, you know, into using the standard text and, you know, going with the vibe. Uh, but, you know, most importantly, the better you can understand that person and what their, you know, their situation, uh, th- their needs and, and their dreams are, um, and the better you can communicate with them the reasons why you think a product would or wouldn't make sense for them, um, the less likely it is that their expectations will be mismatched to the outcome uh, and the less likely it is that they'll make a complaint eventually. Yeah, so really understanding that why, you know, the, the and being able to communicate why that belief in the advisor is that this particular product is going to suit their circumstances. That's it. So, you know, recognising your own biases and uh, most importantly, understanding your client. And look, probably nobody understands uh, people better than uh, advisors. And I think, I mean, that that is the core skill, isn't it? Uh, identifying people's um, needs and, and, and wants and, and helping them to come out with a better outcome than they had before the advice was given. Yep. It's a, uh, I think a lot of people are struggling, a lot of advisors are struggling with this philosophy piece at the moment, being bearing in mind that their new products, they're still getting their head around a lot of how the new products are going to react and behave um, in certain circumstances. And in a lot of situations, it's going to be a, a huge trade-off um, because what, you know, there might be four or five different factors involved in the decision-making process around, and then one company is good with the others. And, and it's, I think it's a it's an interesting um, moment in time uh, as we go through that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I really like to try and encourage uh, advice to have that philosophy or understand why they're making decisions and to, to be able to communicate that. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be tough. I mean, I, I'm going to guess that it's going to be hard the first uh, couple of times and then it'll be something to 
to master and become expert in, you know, those those new products um, when they suit and when they don't um, and how to best communicate uh, those new products to clients and then also certainly to make sure that your documentation is nice and clear and, um, you know, file notes of conversations and also in the, um, in the advice uh, records. Wonderful. Thanks, Natalie, for coming on. We look forward to catching you in the next episode. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Fraser. Welcome back, Ben Martin. Thank you, Fraser Jack. <laughs> no problem. Thank you for coming along. We're talking about insurance philosophy. We're getting into the nitty gritty of uh, advisors really getting into looking at how they talk to their clients, understanding how they choose particular products. Uh, tell us about what you're seeing in the space. Oh, look, it's a um, it's a it's a complex one at the moment, Fraser. Different practices and different advisors have their own individual perspective uh, and philosophy when it comes to risk advice. If we bring it back to first principles, though, at this juncture where we're faced with significant variation, um, you know, what a lot of advisors that we're talking to will begin with is the products that we're looking at. Um, Fundamentally, we want to ensure that they are liberated from the pricing pressures of the past. All right. And I think that's an appropriate starting point because we don't want to be having the same discussion we're having today, five years down the track, Fraser. We want to go to the root cause. Let's go to the root cause and address why we're having this problem in the first place and ensure we don't have a repeat of those out of cycle ad hoc rate rises. Once we start off on first principles from a philosophical from a philosophy um, philosophy perspective, um, I can then identify, okay, then which of my products that I'm looking at have been built within the spirit of these APRA measures. So once we've once we've made that determination from the outset, Fraser, around which particular products I'm leaning towards, are they sustainable or not? The the, the next question that tends to emerge at that point in time is, um, to what extent do I want to provide coverage for my client through to age 65? Because if we look at our traditional IP contracts, they were typically written uh, with a benefit period through to age 65, providing long-term protection to the client in the event of a temporary illness or disablement. If we look across the, if we if we look at the different offers available at the moment, we've got benefits that are capped at five years. We've got the ability to write a contract that provides a benefit period of only five years. We've got some that go right through to age 65. We're hearing more and more that there's that there's that there, that there tends to be a bit more of an appetite for a five-year benefit period when I'm structuring these income protection contracts. And that typically typically comes off the back of, A, I think our advisors are learning more and more that statistically on average within the retail income protection space, uh, at least within the AIA, we're seeing on average around 85 to 90% of retail IP claims being paid and closed and wrapped up within a two-year period. Okay, so in light of those statistics, um, it's tending to provide a bit more support for a shorter benefit period, namely a five-year benefit period, particularly if it means garnering some premium efficiencies for clients that might otherwise have tight or cash flow sensitivities within the family budget. So that's one cohort or that's one school of thought when it comes to structuring these next generation income protection policies. On the other hand, We've got some advisors, and either way, they're valid and fair observations. But on the other hand, the other school of thought 
is that my client perhaps isn't as sensitive uh, to these cash flow constraints. Perhaps they've got surplus cash flow, there's free cash flow and um, they can afford it. But in in some circumstances, uh, we may not have those pressures within the family budget and a recommendation for a benefit period through to age 65 may indeed be warranted, particularly if the client can afford to pay the extra premium associated with the benefit period through to age 65. So they're the two kind of starting points and schools of thought when it comes to structuring these IP products. So statistics statistics are starting to come into play, but also the use of lump sum contracts, Fraser, because a lot of advisors that we're speaking with, they get and they understand that nine out of 10 claimants uh, on average coming off claim within the two-year period But we know and advisors understand, and indeed many advisors probably have clients on the book at the moment that have been on an IP claim for longer than two years. So to cater for those outlier clients or for those more enduring or permanent illnesses, we're starting to find a bit more of an appetite for the use of lump sum TPD contracts as your second line of defense within the client's wealth protection plan that can provide that injection of capital into the client's balance sheet should the temporary illness um, evolve into more of a permanent disablement, particularly off the back of a mental health or a musculoskeletal type of disease or illness that might be prevailing at that point in time. So two points there, a five-year benefit, whether it's a five-year benefit period or a two-age 65 benefit period that's being contemplated within these new constructs, we're finding more of an appetite for the use of a lump sum TPD contract to do some of that heavy lifting and to cater for those outlier clients that might be suffering from a from a more permanent or enduring illness. Now, if I could also add, Fraser, before I lose my train of thought, <laughs> is that um, typically we know an advisor when they're writing an IP contract or recommending an IP contract for a client, they'll usually bundle in the lump sum cover, whether that's life, TPD and perhaps some crisis slash trauma cover, especially if the needs analysis has identified significant levels of non-deductible debt on the balance sheet that needs protecting, all right? So advisors are already doing this, we're finding. It's just that we might need to apply a little bit more rigor over what that sum insured is on the TPD and life component, especially if we're relying on that as a second line of defense to supplement the monthly benefit that's payable under one of these new IP contracts. Yep. Now, I was, I was, thank you for that. I was going to mention uh, with the affordability piece, um, there's obviously the, the, the hardest part that, uh, you know, when people can least afford the insurance is when they most need it and when they can most afford the insurance is when they probably least, least need it. Um, but also, um, I've spoken to you previously about just some of the leading causes of claims. And, and when it comes to setting up your insurance philosophy to be really thinking heavily around, you know, what are the main causes? You know, is it cancers, mental health, um, as you mentioned before, musculoskeletal, um, those sorts of things, and and what are the impacts of those particular uh, conditions on the consumer or the client's life, and therefore looking at that as um, as, a, as something that's really important to within the insurance philosophy. Oh, it's, it's absolutely crucial because when you think about it, right, and you look at the new IP products. You can no longer, generally you can't build in any, 
you used to be able to get something called crisis, built-in crisis recovery benefit in the old IP contracts. It paid like a six-month multiple of the monthly insured benefit off the back of a prescribed illness or condition. We can no longer build that ancillary benefit, generally speaking, into these new contracts. So under Beth's interest duty, if I'm sitting across the table and I'm providing advice to a client that's perhaps 40 plus in the 40 plus age cohort, we know that those clients statistically are at risk of suffering from those prescribed chronic illnesses. So under best interest duty, um, at least for me, it's absolutely imperative that we're looking and contemplating the use of a standalone comprehensive crisis slash crisis recovery slash trauma plan, right? Because when you think about it, if for that 40 plus year old clients, if the if the reason for the temporary illness is cancer, a stroke, or one of those prescribed chronic illnesses, and to the extent that we've got a comprehensive standalone crisis recovery plan bundled in with the IP contract, then all of a sudden we've created this separate funding mechanism that can pump capital into the client's balance sheet, which can be used as a supplementary income stream and to meet the costs, those exorbitant costs that are typically associated with those chronic illnesses, uh, especially in the first few months following the occurrence of that illness or injury. Yeah, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's about uh, looking, at the, looking at that philosophy in a whole, not just product by product. And I would also add, Fraser, if I may, that when we talk to advisors about the use of um, you know, lump sum TPD contracts to cater for those outlier clients that might remain on claim longer than two years... Another strategy or another tactical play that's worth um, bearing in mind in this new world is the use of what we call two plus two, dual income protection play. All right. So what we're we're talking about there is imagine you've got two retail IP contracts. All right. On the one hand, the first retail IP contract has a 30-day wait with a two-year benefit period. Now, under the existing settings, generally that's going to get you 70% of replacement income for the first two years. And, it's, and, the, and the definition of total or partial disablement is also looking at whether you are unable to perform the duties of your own occupation. So you've effectively got an IP own occupation contract for the, for the first two years on claim, paying out and replacing 70% of the client's pre-disablement income. Now, some contracts currently in the market then have inbuilt controls that have the effect of reducing the replacement income after the two-year mark from 70% to 60% and also have the effect of changing the definition of disablement from IP own OCK to an IP any or suited occupation definition. Now, one way to, to counter the effect of those controls is by layering that layering that initial 30-day wait to 30-day wait two-year benefit contract with another retail IP contract that has a two-year waiting period and a benefit period through to age 65. Now, if you structure it effectively with two next generation, and, and you can get this with the AIA offer. So if what we're contemplating here are two AIA IP contracts. Right, you've effectively got an opportunity there to provide four years of IP own occupation 
total disablement and partial disablement definition and four years of 70% of replacement income for the clients. Now, a lot of clients, sorry, a lot of advisors have been receptive to that idea, Fraser, in principle, because from a best interest duty perspective, we're providing the clients with a little bit of extra breathing space to cater for those more enduring illnesses, those outlier clients that we tend to see um, that might remain on claim for longer than your average 24 months. Yeah, well, fantastic. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on this particular episode. I know this is an absolute passion of yours and so you can talk about it all day long. Uh, we look forward to catching you in the next episode when we're talking about where to from here.